Hey there, and welcome back to The Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with y'all. My name is Robert Hassler. I'm the Director of Communications for Ministry State, and here with me, as always, is my very good friend and colleague, Will Stockdale, a Ministry Associate with Ministry State. Um, we have a very uh, good episode of planned for you today. Um, we're very excited. Uh, at the end of the episode, we're going to feature our very first segment of Cinema Cherubim. Uh, we're going to review uh, Netflix's uh, movie, The Dig, uh, which we watched last night uh, and was it was just awesome, and we're really excited to talk about it. Um, but first, we really wanted to spend some time talking about Christian leadership. Uh, obviously, the news, um, especially in evangelical circles, has uh, blown up about uh, recent uh, discoveries and investigations into uh, the Ravi Zacharias scandal. Um, obviously, Ravi was uh, really a, a pioneer in apologetics uh, ministry for a lot of people. A lot of people um, have experiences of coming to faith through his ministry. Um, and are just being rocked by the recent uh, news of his scandal um, and really history of, of sexual uh, being a sexual predator. Will, um, I just wanted to kick this over to you. I mean, what were your thoughts and reactions when you heard the news of Ravi Zacharias? Well, uh, so when, when did the first news break? Was it November? Yeah, it was before the end of the year. And there was the Christianity Day article that came out. Um, you know, I think there were many people who, I mean, typically, you know, skeptical of, of the reports and that makes sense. We, we want to, we want to, um, there's an innocent until proven guilty mindset. Um, for whatever reason, I, I, I wasn't skeptical when it came out from Christianity today for one, it's that that's a publication that does try to do its research on this as, as I don't think they would rush to press with something that was, uh, this damaging, you know, this damning. So there seemed to be some credibility there and it seemed truthful. Uh, it was obviously devastating. We've mentioned this before in the past of just um, how, how vile I think what happened is. And then on Friday, I read the, um, the investigative report that was put out. There was this letter by RZIM Ministries talking about you know, how the board's responding. And then there was the actual legal report that came out. And I read that and it was, um, it was a heavy document. It was a very dark document. It was worse than I would have thought. It, it seems like years and years of just a sinful pathology that had taken place and had affected a lot of people. And I mean, there's, there's more we can discuss, but have you, have you had a chance to read that document or have you been just reading the articles around it? I've just been reading a lot of the reporting uh, around it. I haven't actually spent time uh, in the document. Um, I, similar to you, when the the first, I th- you could say the first piece about this came out, um, I remember the big red flag for me. And I think we may have mentioned it on this show at one point early when, when it first came out. You know, a big red flag is um, ministry leaders signing NDAs um, with people that that seems to me to be a very uh, sketchy thing uh, in many respects. And so, um, and especially if you consider the history, the recent history of, of the Me Too movement and, and stories of abuse and sexual harassment and, and um, sexual predators, it, it fit, you know, very within that framework and narrative. Uh, and uh, I think that with the recent stuff coming out in, in the, the investigation, investigative report, um, it seems that that was the case. 
Uh, and, and I want to, I kind of want to tackle two things because there's one part of this, right? Which is that it's both shocking and completely in line with what we know about a lot of Christian leadership, right? I mean, sexual sins and, and sins in general of big, of big Christian, let's call it, for lack of a better term, let's call them celebrities. Um, I'm thinking also of the pastor up in New York city. Um, I think is Yeah. Um, I mean, this is completely with, uh, in sort of the same framework that we've been used to, uh, in recent decades. Um, I'm also thinking just also kind of about, you might want to lump in, um, uh, the, the Catholic church, uh, abuse scandal as well. You know, we're very, uh, we're starting to get almost numb to, uh, the amount of scandals by Christian celebrities and Christian leaders. Um, and then the, the other element that I want to get into at some point is, um, what it means for us in, uh, let's just say the laity, uh, and our faith when our Christian leaders or our Christian quote unquote celebrities fail us, how should we think about Christian celebrity culture? I kind of want to get into that too, but first let, let's kind of, uh, go back to, you know, what's going on, uh, in our culture, our Christian culture, where these cases of scandal and abuse are becoming more and more the norm. I mean, that's, that's the million dollar question. I think if there was a clear answer to that, that was agreed upon, we would be in a, I mean, is there any answer beyond what we already get from scripture? And I don't want to be, you know, just kind of flat in that way of, of avoiding any conversation dialogue and trying to maybe figure out, are there sociocultural patterns that are in place that are causing these things to happen? I think you mentioned the NDA and it is, it really is impossible for me to imagine any situation in which an individual in ministry should sign an NDA. And I was talking to a professor of mine about that. And he, what he pointed out was the reason for that is the prophetic witness of the church. If the church is to be salt and light in the world is to be prophetic witnessing God's truth to the world amongst itself, then it cannot be hiding anything. It cannot prevent anyone from speaking to do that is to directly undercut the prophetic witness. And so that, that this practice of NDA has to cease immediately. I don't, it is a huge red flag for what I, I, I don't think there can be strong enough terms here to put on that and questions of what is going on in the world. You know, I, I've been thinking if we look at this, you know, you mentioned Ravi Zacharias, Carl Lentz, the Catholic Church. I think we can try to like point to different things and, and try to explain it one way or another. We'll say, well, look, it's it's their ecclesiology. I mean, it's their ecclesiology. That's clearly what it is. And we're like, well, how come it's all of these different denominations? Maybe it's not ecclesiology. Well, they didn't have accountability. No, that's clearly not true. Ravi Zacharias had a board. And even if we were to say they weren't elders, it's like, I know of a, you know, there's plenty of Presbyterians who have failed sexually in this sense as well. Well, they didn't have their theology right. And it's like, again, it's all over the place. So there's not this like one group that is immune. It is a sin that is permeating. It is an example of nothing has ceased except what is common to man in this way in a very tragic sense. And as I've been thinking about it, in terms of what scripture tells us, it it seems to be as straightforward as in our hearts, when we are not accepting the righteousness of Christ, when we are not clothing ourselves in Christ's righteousness, we prefer darkness to light. We would rather live in the darkness 
than in the light. And that is what we are inclined to run to, but for the grace of God. And I think one of the reasons that answer that is simple, but it's also actually pretty terrifying because there's a responsibility for one to realize on my own, what I am left to two, my absolute powerlessness to face sin on my own. And three, the vigilance that I have to keep up in following Jesus and keeping a guard on my heart and mind. And it's, it's, it's weighty. It's big, but again, it starts with Christ's grace and righteousness to us. But I, when we look at just how broad this is and how it affects everyone, almost it's like Occam's razor comes in. It's like, what's the simplest answer here? And it's that oftentimes we prefer darkness to light. And this is what happens and why Jesus calls us to come into the light. Yeah. I think that's really well said. Um, I, th- I think you're hitting an important point that received a little bit of controversy on Twitter. Um, uh, I think that there was a sort of a, kind of a Twitter personality who basically said, if you don't think that, you know, you person criticizing uh, Ravi Zacharias aren't capable of the same sort of things, then you don't understand the doctrine of sin. Um, And a lot of people push back on that saying like that sort of uh, levels all sin. um, And so you're denying the horror, like the, the absolute horribleness of what happened. And I think the important thing to say is that you can actually, that's not an either or that's a both. And like, you can, you can say both things, you can affirm both things. And that is one that, um, uh, I am a, a sinner and only by the grace of God, am I not worse than I am? And I'm capable of, of anything. I, I like, I, like you said, I prefer the darkness. I would be ha- more than happy to run into the darkness, um, left on my own. Right. And at the same time, that's real darkness, right? Like that, that darkness results in real horrible uh, tragedies and, and victims and abuse. And, um, I think we, we need to be able to really grapple with that and humble ourselves and hold those things together. Um, it's true. You know, uh, a pastor who, uh, embezzles money from a church is a different and, uh, uh, a different kind of sin than somebody who, you know, preys on women for, using his position and authority, you know, for years and years. I mean, that is obvious. We can, we can acknowledge distinctions and differences and, and levels of severity uh, in those two things. But we also need to recognize that um, it is only by the grace of God that uh, uh, the rest of us in any sort of form of ministry um, aren't running into the same sorts of sins and, and committing the same things. Because like you said, it is only by the grace of God um, that, we, that we find ourselves, you know, not in those positions. I saw that and people were pushing back on that tweet and I thought it could have been said a little better. Sure. But the point still stands. It is a huge mistake for us to think that we are immune from certain sins. It is, it is inconsistent with the biblical understanding of our depravity of our wickedness of the fallenness of our heart. Yes. Like you said, is what happened uniquely wicked, but that, person who said that is in no way denying that he is simply saying that if we are unwilling to say that could happen to me we are unwilling to look at the depth and wickedness so these people need to start reading dostoevsky all the bibles <laughs> and they need to read demons and the brothers karamazov that's what i would say in response to this and then in addition um i had a, when I, I took a gap year after high school and i studied in england at a bible school and one of the professors had this line and he said, there is no sin of which I am incapable of committing five minutes after leaving this pulpit. 
Mm. And that has always stuck with me. And that was a very humble, honest assessment. He was a good, godly man. There, I don't know of any great sin in his life, but he was honest enough to say, um, there, there's, a, there's a depth of, of wickedness there that, uh, like, what does Calvin say? The heart is an idol factory. What are idols? Idols are things that are contrary to God. What did Ravi Zacharias do? He made an idol out of a particular kind of comfort to worship and secure himself. And in you know, in, in turn ended up devastating these women. I mean, there's accusations of rape that have, that, that, that are there. Um, there's gross spiritual, um, manipulation that took place where that woman was told, if you report this millions of souls will be on your shoulders. That is so, so wicked, so evil. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. And so one of the things that I think we're, we're hitting on is there, there seems to be a connection here between humility um, and celebrity culture, if that makes sense, and sort of two uh, opposite ends. Um, and I wonder, you know, what is the role of America's, you know, broadly speaking, um, obsession with celebrities and how has evangelical culture really kind of bought into that and tried to let's for lack of a better way of, or lack of a better term of saying it, like tried to like redeem that and use it for our own good. It kind of feels like we've tried to plunder the Egyptians on celebrity culture. Like what if we just put our people in and made our people celebrities, then, you know, look at what we could do. I mean, do you sense that? Is that, is that something that you sense in the broader sort of church culture or is, am I completely reading into that? No. Well, it's, it's a uniquely American thing. It's been exported to other parts of the world, but it, it started here. Certainly this celebrity culture, people just need to read David Wells. They need to read David F. Wells. They need to, as a shorter synopsis of his writings, read the courage to be Protestant. And he talks, uh, if you want to get more of the guts of, of his argument that he's making that book, read his other four books that come before that. And he does a wonderful job explaining a lot of things. Another, we don't have time to get into all this right now. Um, this later, but the democratization of American Christianity, um, this kind of popularization. I remember when I was first thinking about going into ministry, I met with a pastor in, uh, I met with a Baptist pastor in uh, Dallas. And uh, I asked him, how do I know if I'm called? And he said, well, if you start leading and people are following you, then you're called, uh, which removed any authority of the local church. In fact, it actually removed any place of elders, of leadership, identifying someone, putting them in a place and then helping support them, which means, I mean, there, there's a number of issues where that becomes uh, a number of areas where that becomes a real issue where I'm left on my own for my own shepherding, right? I have to kind of figure things out on my own. There's not really this guidance, this mentoring, this Paul Timothy thing that happens there. Um, but I think that's a lot of, uh, we assume that if people are, are being followed, that God is calling them. And, you know, people will say things like healthy things grow. And I was like, yeah, so do weeds. You know, <laughs> it's not just daisies that grow. Uh, I remember just to bring up our patron saint, Sinclair Ferguson here <laughs> of theology. We were going over um, qualifications for shepherds and overseers. And, and Ferguson made this remark where he said, you know, I kind of wish that this Title, this segment wasn't titled that whoever put the heading there, because oftentimes we think that if someone uh, 
manifests or contain has these qualities that are in scripture that therefore they ought to be an elder or leader. And he's like, that's, that's actually not how it works. There is a calling that takes place, an internal and an external calling, both of which are required for leadership. But I think we have really seen that, you know, if a lot of people want it, then it must be good. If, if there's a demand for it, then that must be what we want. Um, yeah. What do you think? Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this, you know, celebrity uh, evangelical leaders and Ravi Zacharias certainly was one of them. Um, but I mean, it's true that that sort of mentality or that sort of phenomena is manifesting itself in uh, other areas that aren't necessarily uh, tinged with the same sort of scandal. So like, you know, Joel Osteen uh, pastors a church that I don't know, has how many members? I mean, just thousands upon thousands, right? And uh, tens of thousands. Yeah, and I'm sure, and, and has a show that I'm sure, you know, has reached millions of people. Um, and a lot of prosperity gospel uh, pastors tend to be pretty celebrity oriented. And um, I think that uh, America is just a unique place where that, not just that message, but that whole model of ministry fits really well into our sort of American psychology um, that uh, it's about providing a, a, a product, a service to the market and the market responds. And that's how you assign value. And um, we don't, we don't tend to uh, uh, value things on whether they're good or not. We tend to value things on whether they're successful or not, uh, whether they sort of scratch the itch that we need. And if you're, if, the scratch is, um, I want to feel good about myself and I want to be successful and blah, blah, blah. Then the prosperity gospel does that well, not, and it does not allow you the opportunity to really look at it and say, but is that good for me? Is that, is that really what I deep down need and desire? Um, and you know, where you find that might be in something much, you know, humbler, uh, like, uh, you know, a local church shepherding a couple, you know, a handful of people uh, through life. And I think, um, I think as, as Americans in particular, we, we have to be really on guard of the lures of celebrity culture. I think we just desperately want to have the broader culture like us and, and to be popular so bad um, that we often compromise on things that we should not be compromising on. Um, you know, obviously the opportunity to, uh, apologize, you know, approach skeptics apologetically, uh, is something that we really want to do and we want to do it on a mass scale. Uh, but look at the cost, um, you know, is that really, uh, worth it? Um, same thing with prosperity gospelers. Uh, I, I think, uh, we really need to re-examine our model of ministry and what we're aiming for, because this is the, this is the last thing I want to bring this up. It seems that celebrity uh, culture within the church is almost forming its own ecclesiology model of ministry. I mean, there seems to be a, a way that even churches that are only reaching a hundred people or so have modeled their liturgy as if, they were planting a seed to build a mega church. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I think maybe we should circle back to this at, at some point. Maybe we can do it now, but a, a clear definition of what is a celebrity 
culture in the church? What exactly does that look like? Because one could argue that Tim Keller is a celebrity now. And even in some circles, Sinclair Ferguson is, is held as a celebrity. And neither of those men, would I say, are by intention or design. In fact, uh, Keller has mentioned he doesn't, didn't like that. He didn't want that. I mean, he's, he's a nerd. Like he, he wants to, he wanted to write books and that's actually what made him a celebrity, but it, they, he really did a lot to guard that and keep that from, from becoming his persona. I think you could add John Piper to that list too. as somebody. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. That's a good point. And um, you know, what is the future of celebrity culture in the church? What does it look like? I, I wonder how long it, it sustains. Um, There does seem to be a shift towards from individuals to institutions, perhaps a little more, which is really good. Uh, Denominations are a great vehicle for that. Again, and this is the point we have to be clear what we're saying to bring it back darkness to light. These things will not keep us from sin. Institutions will not protect us from they Well, they might guard us. They provide helpful barriers, but if we believe that it's the institutions that are going to keep us from falling into sin or making celebrities, we have totally missed it. What we need to understand is that there are wise uh, principles. There are, there are, there's a grain of the universe. There's a structure to things that God has given us and that we understand humans operate best and flourish most when they, when they follow these parameters and they follow these wisdom principles. It, on that line, the only philosophical school that has been created on the American continent is pragmatism. <laughs> that's, that's our philosophical. I mean, if it works, then it must be right. And in fact, I was, when I was in youth ministry, we went on a mission trip and one of the students asked if, if we could do something, I said, actually, no, we can't. That's, that's not actually how, how we do it. That's, that's not a really good way. And he's like, but it works. <laughs> and so there was just no question of it possibly if it was effective if it was you if it had utility then it must be good where actually uh maybe not maybe maybe there are consequences like you're saying that are associated with it that's a really good point i that's a that's a very helpful way of thinking about this thing um i guess uh, switching gears just a little bit i, I kind of want to lead us into the second half of this conversation that, that i want to have and that is uh, the effect uh, of scandal, uh, particularly among uh, Christians and evangelical leaders with with a lot of influence and, and power, th- the effect it has on the laity when those folks fall into scandal. Um, there's a lot of people who have taken to social media, um, have written you know pieces, really kind of questioning their faith about you know if. If this person who I so revered can fall into sin, like, what does this thing mean? Like, why am I following it? Um, you know, the 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 people who were the quickest to uh, say we told you so were all these sort of online atheist groups um, uh, who kind of say, look, it's all it's all fake, it's all false, it doesn't actually do anything. And so, I guess, what's sort of your response to that mindset? The the mindset of because of scandal, we have to sort of doubt the effectiveness or truth of the gospel. You know, I mean, that's, gosh, that's such a good question. And I think there's there's two answers to this. There is the intellectual answer, then there's the pastoral answer. And which one people need first depends on the circumstance, how, how we respond and what we say to them. But the intellectual 
is Augustinian, and and I think we can point it in, to other things, but is that the you know the efficacy of the sacraments is not in the administrator, it is in the Holy Spirit, and so Ravi Zacharias never saved anyone. Carl Lentz never saved anyone. The Holy Spirit saves all of us, and that is a timeless truth. And you know, it, it is an inglorious thing in this instance. But it, I mean, for God, it's amazing. But the truth is that God uses broken vessels, and oftentimes He uses broken vessels who are humble, and other times He uses broken vessels who are wicked. And now, um, so that that is a truth. That that is reality. That we are not saved by any man, but by the Holy spirit. And that, that the truth of the gospel is not changed. Um, there's a great quote by Chesterton where he points out how people are so ridiculing the church when its leaders fall. And he points out, he's like, you know, it's interesting that the reason people are most critical of Christianity is because the, the aims to which they hold the, 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 the height of our beliefs are such that the fall is so great when it does happen, which is a nice twist on it in that what, what God is doing, what he has said, who he claims to be the gospel, the, the reconciliation, redemption of all things is so magnificent. His love for us is so great that when we fall from that, it's like an infinite chasm. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, that's the point. It is an infinite chasm that can only be united bridged by Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the pastoral response and it is a lot of listening and I think it's it's us as believers getting sensitive hearts to realize, but for the grace of God, there go I. And the love that we have for the world, this John 3.16 love for God so loved the world is not a selfish love, but it is a giving love. As we receive love from the Father and Son, we are able to give it to other people. And if we want to wonder how do we serve the church in that time, maybe it's by understanding and receiving the love the Father has for us. Um and being willing to show that to people by listening and speaking gospel truth, not bashing Ravi, which I mean, I don't, you know, that there's some danger I think in bashing anybody, but um, you know, by not bashing the church saying, yeah, we failed, we failed really bad. It's like just listening to people and then pointing them towards Jesus. Um, and again, which comes first, the intellectual, the pastoral, it depends on the circumstance and what people most need at that time. But I think it's going to take both for people who are hurting. That's well said. I, I, you know, I don't really have much to offer in terms of advice just because um, I'm new into ministry and I, I feel in some ways very empathetic of it. I mean, I, the person that has the largest influence on me, I would say in, in terms of theology uh, is someone like R.C. Sproul, who, you know, you could argue is, is fits into this category. Um but I realize now looking back that that's not actual, you know, that's how I would describe it, but that's not actually true because as I look back in my life, the, the people that really had the largest influence on me are people like my parents and people like my local, my local pastor, um, uh, friends who were in the laity, but just completely and wholly giving of their lives to to God, to the gospel and to Christ. And, um, I guess I don't have much to say other than to say, I'm just incredibly thankful for those people. And that, um, for all of the Ravi Zacharias's in the world, there are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of just, you know, committed, faithful, obedient, um, pastors and, and shepherds 
who are not famous on Twitter, don't have a radio show, don't have a million dollar ministry, um, but are just working day in and day out uh, uh, for the kingdom of God. And because they love it, because they've decided to give their life to it. And I think not, you know, the answer is not go out and find those people and then raise them up to celebrity, right? The, the solution is to say, um, look for those people and, and, and that are in your community and attach yourselves to them, um, to be willing to listen to them and learn from them. Um, and, you know, if, if the, the consequence of, of the fall of RZIM, because I, I actually don't really know how the ministry continues on um, with his name, if the legacy is, oh, I'm going to kind of stop going to these giant conferences that cost, you know, X hundreds of dollars. And instead, I'm going to sort of recommit myself to attending my local church weekly and going to a, a, a once a week Bible study or devotional or whatever led by my, my local pastor. If that's the consequence, then, you know, that's a way I think that the God, that the Lord uses a, such a horrific event as this for good. Um, and so that's really what I'm looking for as I, as I go forth from this sort of whole event. Yeah. To our parents out there who are listening, Robert, just to echo what you're saying, it is not a political comment to say that it starts in the home. Well, unfortunately we're at a place right now where that sounds political. It's not, it's, it's biblical. In fact, this, the first nine chapters of Proverbs are a father's letter to a son and the father praising his wife as well. I mean, this is, this is how the model of training up and tradition and raising noble people uh, occurs is in starting in the home. And if we need sociological data, Christian Smith has done a ton of research on this and it is, it is study after study after study. It has shown the two most influential people on a young person's life are their parents and parents out there. If you feel like my kids tell, I don't feel like they listen to me. No, that is completely false. They listen to you. They pay attention to you. They learn from you. Your sins affect them. Your righteousness is a blessing to them. So this, this is an issue that starts very, very locally and very, very intimately. And, and another night, this is another side. This is little off, but uh, you mentioned RZIM continuing. I'm with you. I do not see any way that RZIM continues. I think that as a ministry, fairly convicted of convinced that it must dissolve, that as an institution, as a board with its leaders, speakers, all of its apologists, that it has to dissolve. They can use whatever finances they have, one, to pay reparations, to pay the hurt that these women have gone under, and then to use the rest to help these people who are innocent. Um, if people aren't, they need to get help. And people who are, help them get jobs elsewhere and, and use that to, to move them out. Because look, this, mag, this massive sin is having incredible impacts all over the place. But I think you're right. I do not think it can continue. And I, I, I don't think it would be good for it to continue, in fact. But- that's just what I've been thinking recently. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that's that's really well said. Um, but I think this actually is a pretty good stopping point. And, and what you were talking about sort of, of, of training up the, the next generation and passing down um, uh, their faith and their traditions and their all that kind of stuff, I think plays really well into the next segment, uh, which we're going to do, which is um, our uh, Cinema Cherubim. So we're going to actually take a quick break and we'll be right back to discuss The Dig on Netflix. 
So we are shifting our tone here for uh, another segment, something that we said we were going to do last week. We said that we were going to start a new segment to do occasionally called Cinema Cherubim, where we are your uh, video angels here. Uh, definitely, you know, and uh, re- reviewers uh, going to take a film and just kind of discuss it a little bit, talk about why we liked it, why we didn't. And the first movie that we want to talk about is The Dig, which was released this year already. And I'll give you guys a description here as we get started. So a synopsis of it is in the late 1930s, wealthy landowner Edith Pretty, who's played by Carrie Mulligan, hires amateur archaeologist Basil Brown, who's played by Rafe Fiennes, to investigate the mounds on her property in England. He and his team discover a ship from the Dark Ages while digging up a burial ground. The other big star, maybe the yeah, the, probably the third biggest star is uh, Lily James, who is in Baby Driver as well. She is featured as an archaeologist in the movie. Uh, Robert, you are uh, much more knowledgeable in terms of uh, film reviewing and cinema. Uh, you love this. And so I want to kick it over to you to get your take on some highlights, some points that you liked, um, and what you think was the message and the takeaway from the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I definitely uh, uh, am really excited to talk about this movie. I guess the first thing I would want to say is that we actually watched this movie via Teleparty, the the little plug-in about, uh, that you can do with your computer where you can actually watch a movie with somebody uh, uh, online. So, Will, we got to do that last night, which I thought was really fun. I haven't done that. I know a lot of people have uh, taken advantage of that feature uh, during the pandemic, but that was the first time I've done it. I, I thought it was a really interesting and fun idea. I mean, it was really kind of, fun to chat with you uh and on the side as sort of we were watching the movie about like different scenes and what we thought was happening and um it's sort of it adds a good uh uh element to watching a movie because you don't have to like necessarily pause it and like stop and talk but you can just sort of like add a chat and like keep watching um which i thought was really cool so i I hope we get to do some more of those uh in the future it was a very COVID 19 way to watch a movie isolated at a distance. I was alone, of course, but it made it feel like I was less alone when able to chat with you in the sidebar and to know that we're in the exact same place um, uh, in terms of where we're watching it, that you don't have to like, okay, on count of three, press play. <laughs> it was, you know, it was fun. It was a unique thing. It's it's not ideal. Hopefully uh, for our next Cinema Cherubim, we'll, we'll be in a movie theater. Yeah. I mean, I would really like to go back to the, to the theaters. And I know that, you know, there, there's a lot of movies that are, are, are moving that way. And that's always uh, good to see. And of course, all the, the data saying that, you know, the chances of getting COVID in a movie theater are really low. So I, I'm excited for that. Um, going back to the dig, I mean, um, I mean, there's so much you can say about this movie. Uh, I, I noticed that, you know, a lot of the, the popular uh, reviews and, and feedback from it. I mean, first off, it's just a beautifully shot film and that seems to be a pretty common thread for movies that are shot in british countryside um they just are always beautiful it just doesn't have the same kind of obviously this movie is set in the you know right on the cusp of world war ii um but it just doesn't have the same sort of uh infrastructure that american settings have um it's just always very peaceful and uh, beautiful. And so I, I think that's the first thing that, that stuck out. Um, of course, the acting was, was brilliant. Um, uh, Fines, I think, does just an amaz- amazing uh, portrayal. Uh, and, you know, he's 
working on so many different levels um, to add depth to this character. Uh, and, and he really does become somebody that you are absolutely rooting for and just absolutely um, uh, captivated by uh, throughout the whole movie. And that's not to say, you know, and there's the, the other actors are doing, uh, you know, brilliantly as well. So um, I think the, the big thing about this movie for me is that it might be the greatest um, defense, if you want to say, if you want to say that of classical liberal arts, great books, education, um, which is weird for a movie that takes zero play. It has zero scenes in a classroom. Um, but it is really about uh, learning, uh, having a love of learning and understanding what education is for. Um, I think that there's really two sides that you, that you're confronted with during this movie. You're confronted with uh, Basil Brown, who is a self-taught man um, who loves learning for the sake of learning um, and, and feels an obligation to share that knowledge and to share that learning with others um, to really invite people into that process. And then you have, um, and then all the characters that are sort of associated with him. And then you have sort of the stuffy uh, intellectual type from the, from the museums. Um, and they seem to be more interested in collecting, if you will, in, in, in more the idea of, of what these artifacts and this knowledge means for them personally and for their personal advancement uh, in society. Um, and I think that that's kind of how we picture education today. I mean, right, like a lot of education is focused around how you can obtain all this stuff, how you can collect it for yourself so that you can then become successful. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things about The Dig is that that, that idea is, is sort of shown to be empty and hollow, whereas the people who love learning for the sake of learning aren't materially well off, but they're good right? They're, they're virtuous. And the sense is, especially as it's set right on the cusp of World War II, the sense is that Britain is going to get through this, this horrible event because it has people like Basil Brown. Well, so let me ask you, like, what were some of the things that stuck out to you uh, during the film? Well, uh, something that you and I have talked about and something that I've, I've thought about is it, this comes out in C.S. Lewis's writings a lot just this deep appreciation for the average Englishman for the average English guy who's in the pub who would serve in world war II, And Ray Fine's character is this um, now he is exceptional in that he is clearly very brilliant and he is well-educated and well-read, but it is not in fact, because he has some exceptional um, pedigree of any kind. It is, because of a diligence and a dedication. And it's in fact, because of an inheritance that he received from one generation after another that he felt responsibility for to share on, which is again, with the principle that you were talking about. And again, as Mako comes up so often, it's a generative concept here where what we know, what is our responsibility in that? And um, it should be not just to share our resources, but our wisdom with the people that we come in contact with, especially those younger people. Uh, I had, you know, breakfast with uh, our boss and I benefit so greatly from his wisdom. And I'm so thankful that he would take time to talk to me with those kind of things. So that was one of my favorite 
parts about it is this guy who has this this knowledge and this information but loves to share it he takes great joy in loving other people through transmitting what he knows and i think something in the background of this is also is you know you get the the cambridge oxford scholars who come out and the the kind of in the background is the reality that the reason that that finds character knows what he knows is because of these men however the intention of these people publishing at least in the movie wasn't necessarily for him but for themselves and not that the average person could could get to know and i think um, again it's not very glorious but it is very good yeah yeah that's or i guess the the big thing in this movie right is that they're they're juxtaposing uh let's just say knowledge against wisdom uh they are juxtaposing utility against virtue um and it, it it what it does such a good job of is really exposing the holes in that that one side the right the knowledge the utility uh there's a this this great little line that's kind of a, almost a throwaway line in the movie where they're di- they're excavating a little portion of the ship uh and uh the guy stumbles upon something amazing and he, and he's like it's this really like it's like this glob of of darker dirt and the the cambridge guy's like remember your training man and he's like oh yeah it's an a- anamorphous and he kind of like rambles off these really big words, but you realize like what he just said was nonsense. Like what he had actually said first made way more sense and actually told you what it was, right? That's wisdom. Um, and I, I think the main point here is that that wisdom equips you to like do life um, and to act virtuously in life. And so um, it's not just that uh, they are able to excavate this brilliant ship um, and, and learn more about the culture of the Anglo-Saxons and, and, you know, their contributions to, to the British culture. But like Basil Brown is able to uh, be a good husband. He's able to be a good mentor to the young boy, Robert. Um, the, the cousin who comes and helps, uh, is able to be heroic, uh, and say, and, uh, rescue a body from a, a plane that crashes. Um, even, you know, Lily James's character, is able to uh, understand kind of what it means to be in a loveless marriage and, you know, what is marriage for, what, what is uh, love mean. And, and, and I think that there's just a lot of interesting practical elements that get played in that's sort of happening around this intellectual endeavor. And what it shows is that people who are dedicated to wisdom and, and who love learning are better equipped to sort of navigate life well. Yeah. Uh, Aristotle, there's a quote where he said, um, education is the best preparation for old age and this accumulation of knowledge and wisdom to give to people as we get older, because our, our bodies do slow down and they do break down and we can't do as much. So what do we have? We have words and wisdom to share with people and uh, to give them. I, I loved the movie. I thought it was great. I need to watch it again. Like you said, it was, it was beautifully shot it was rich. Um, it was very clean. I think there was like two parts of the movie that, that really aren't, uh, very graphic, but, but I think you could skip past for like 10 seconds, maybe total. Um, and it, it was, it, it was, it was heartbreaking at times also, but all in all, I, I loved it. And I think I should watch it again. Cause there's some more I want to think about from it. 
Yeah, it's weird. It's a two, almost a two and a half hour film about digging up an old ship and there's almost no action in it. But as I finished it, I was like, I cannot wait to rewatch that movie. Like it, it has this weird quality to it. I shouldn't say weird. It has this really kind of awesome quality to it uh, where you're just captivated by the acting and the, and the cinematography and the story that it just keeps drawing you in, even though really nothing like exciting, quote unquote, you know, based on like sort of popular standards happens. And I'm, I'm really excited to re- return to it. I'm sure I'll, I'll get way more out of it the second, second time around. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. Well, great. That was, I think that was a fun uh, first segment of Cinema Cherubim. I'm excited to do this again. Um, you know, I, I think one thing that we had in, in vision for this, this segment is first off, you know, we talk about such heavy things. Obviously today we did a lot about sort of the, the scandal about Ravi Zacharias. Um, I think it's good to sort of take a couple minutes and, and talk about film and something that um, is a little bit more lighthearted. Um, but at the same time, uh, we need to recognize that uh, what we watch has an incredible shaping power on us. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I like to joke that I can't really quote books and stories and stuff that I've read. But like I can like basically run you scene by scene of all the Lord of the Rings movies, of all the Star Wars movies. I mean, these things have made an impression on me. Um, and, and I think that that's true for a lot of people who, who love movies and watch a lot of films. And so I think this segment will be a good, uh, uh, fun thing going forward as we examine that, that phenomena. I'm with you. I agree. I'm looking forward to the next one. Well, great. Well, thank you so much uh, for listening to the Will and Rob show. Uh, as always, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Artie Hassler. Will is at Stockdale Will. Will just wrote a great devotional today uh, on the Ministry of State website, which you can check out at ministryofstate.org. Don't forget to like and subscribe this podcast. Um, It helps with the algorithms that we don't know about, uh, but we would love for you to do that for us. Uh, And we'll see you guys again next week.